This is an ABC podcast. Over the last couple of weeks, events have been unfolding in Canberra that raise serious questions. Questions about Australia's parliamentary culture, questions about how the demands of justice can best be met. These are issues that concern us greatly on the minefield, but we've decided to hold off discussing them until we can do the topic itself justice. Excellent triplets. Welcome to the minefield. Uh, you are with me, Waleed Ali, and my co-host Scott Stevens as we try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. Scott, I'm going to start with something big today. Good. Our show is nothing if not ambitious. Well, you know, I was yes, that's true. Yeah. I, I was no, I was going to make a statement. I'm going to ask a question. Okay. It's been bugging me for years. This, mm. and I've decided I finally need your counsel on it. How do you feel about emojis? Well, I have told my wife that if she ever receives communication from me of any kind in any form that contains an emoji, she'll know mm. that either my body has been snatched or that I'm being impersonated. Uh, there's really no other option. I, I myself don't use them. I dislike the use of them mm. quite intensely, and I've become increasingly... Let's just put it aesthetically distressed by oh, their wow. ubiquity. Just, just the fact that, I mean, even quite serious academics, I'm not going to name them on this show. I could, I could, but serious academics, I, I've received either emails or text messages from them that include emojis in otherwise relatively, in other words, I, I, I feel that they've become almost part of the online vernacular. Almost. Uh, I would say they're dominant within the online vernacular. Okay. Yeah. Go on. Well, I'm simultaneously relieved and disturbed to hear you say all this <laughs> because that is exactly how I feel and have always felt. I can't stand them and I can't stand that they're used so commonly. And as you say, by people who should know better, frankly, mm. but I've never encountered anyone who agrees with me until now, Oh, really? which makes me think that we might be the only two people in the world who feel this way. And that means that if we are going to proceed with a discussion on this, we have to do it in the knowledge and with the acknowledgement that we are about as unrepresentative <laughs> as anyone could be on anything, I think. <laughs> it's that bad. Well, you know what this, you know what this conjures to mind is mm. the two old grumpy farts up in the balcony on The Muppet Show. Yes. Um, that could very well, you know. That's that's what we are. Okay. <laughs> which, which worries me now because I never thought that, like I, I kind of would take umbrage at people describing us that way generally. Yeah. But in this case, it's pretty hard to resist that argument. It's isn't true. It? It's true. <laughs> it's kind of what we are. So, okay. May I just keep asking some questions yes, over here? Okay. How do you feel when you receive an emoji-laden text? Uh. My first feeling is exasperation. Um, I just find it. I mean, especially when so many predictive options. Can I just say this show isn't about this, but that's one of the other things that really disturbs me. If I miss a call from my wife and mm. I go to respond to her immediately by text mm. message because I'm in an editorial meeting or because I can't get to the phone, my phone offers me up all of these pre-written sentences or phrases that I can use to try to essentially palm her off. 
uh, or let her know that I'll get to it later. Uh, sorry, I can't talk right now. Yes, uh, uh, or yeah, back to yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Th- things like that, which... Okay, in sort of extreme circumstances, I don't know when I'm missing all but one finger. I, I can kind of understand that something like that <laughs> might be Sorry, be how, often, how often are those circumstances? Yeah, very, very rarely. Um, yeah. So I think all of these, it, it's all of these predictive or pre-digested options, including the list of emojis that are offered up um, in certain circumstances or on the basis of common use. Or, sorry, one's own use, I, I should say. So my first reaction, my first response is just a mm. degree of exasperation. Um, it immediately strikes me, though, the mix of impenetrability and ease of consumability. In other words, there, there are certain things, certain emojis that are immediately consumable. Let me put it that way. I don't really have to think about it. You look at it and what you know it's exactly trying. what it's saying. Yeah, the yeah. affect that it's trying to communicate, the expression that it's trying to get to is pretty much there. But as soon as you string them together, they actually function for me almost like hieroglyphs. It's a sequence of things yeah, yeah, that yeah. almost need to be decoded. And I think that's one of the interesting things in some respects about emojis, that it's this strange mixture of transparency. It simply communicates a feeling immediately without words, but when too many are used, or even when a particular emoji, like say the crying one or the- Crying, laughing one, you mean? Yeah, the crying, laughing, or the somewhat freaked out, oh my God, something that it's trying to- Yeah, the the one that looks like the scream? Yes, precisely. So in some cases, I find it almost harder to pick up the tone that the emoji is trying to suggest- so do you know what I find? I find when there's a whole string of them, I don't even look at them. I just go, oh, there's a bunch of emojis. That's not relevant hmm. to the message that's being sent to me. I just want the text. When there's a single one, then it's different. I can I identify. Your invocation of hieroglyphics is really interesting because that's what I've always thought is that didn't we evolve language <laughs> and alphabet beyond hieroglyphics for a reason? And so why this determined regression? Yeah, well, see, just just hang on. The case of hieroglyphs is actually quite interesting here. In a former life, mm. I spent way Were you too... an Egyptologist? I wasn't an Egyptologist, but I was deeply, deeply immersed in Semitic and cognate Semitic languages. So from right. the invention of the, uh, of the Ugaritic alphabet, um, a kind of a slight step up from cuneiform onwards. And I mean, the thing about hieroglyphs is they are... They are sacred forms of writing, and there are only some that were able to read them. Uh, And hieroglyphs also couldn't be translated from one vernacular into another. They're a very particular form of sacred writing, and there's a kind of non-translatability about them. The whole reason for the invention of an alphabet or something like an alphabet was to enable one language to be more or less, or one form of communication, one form of expression, more or less to be translated into other forms of expression. Not so much for them to be democratized, for them to be readily available to populations, because remember, in the ancient world, populations are famously, fabulously illiterate. Um, It's almost entirely oral rather than textual. Um, But the thing that the invention of an alphabet is supposed to do is to enable something like a kind of universality of communication. I would suggest, Waleed, that what emojis ironically do is in the minds of some, they are straining for or they are pining after something like a kind of universal digital language. So emojis, I mean, the emoji keyboard is the most widely used keyboard in the world. Emojis are meant to have, are meant to function as a kind of cross-cultural, cross-communicative 
form of expression. So in, in many respects, by going back to something that resembles a hieroglyph, part of the effort here, part of the ambition is actually to achieve something like universality. Which is the opposite of a hieroglyph. Yes, precisely. Yeah. Okay. For a moment, I thought you were trying to argue that emojis were a sacred text. No, 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 no. Um, just as an aside, the moment for me where it all fell apart was when I found out that Julie Bishop loved using emojis. <laughs> I can't remember what role she had at the time. Was she the foreign minister? She was foreign or minister. Or was she in opposition? I can't remember how long Emoji diplomacy. Emoji diplomacy. Yeah. And I think it was at that moment where I thought, oh, the battle is lost. Yeah. True. Contemporary illiteracy has now spread to the highest reaches and the highest offices in the land. But then, because we're clear, as I say, as unrepresentative as any people on any broadcast medium have been on anything, perhaps we should pause to consider the arguments that are put in favour of emojis. Yeah. Um, sorry, it's going to hurt to strain my brain to this, this extent, but are they highly communicative and fun and add tone where tone is frequently absent, that is in text, so in writing. Mm -hmm. And given that tone is such an important part of communication, they become not just acceptable, but vital part mm. of, of digital vernacular, because especially in text messaging, you are doing something that's more akin to a conversation than a dissertation. And so you need that they're, they're called emojis for a reason, right? They, yep. They infuse the text with a necessary emotion that is part of um, standard communication and, and conversation. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I stumbled because I don't believe anything well, I just said, but I, yeah. I, I was my best attempt. Uh, and, and look, that, that was a valiant attempt. And in, Thank in, you. <laughs> and, and in some ways, I, I, I do kind of buy it, but I see emojis as a form of relief from two related problems that have been created. Uh, they are two, in some respects, seemingly opposed problems, but I think they're two sides of the same coin. One is the fact that we are swimming in text. I mean, our lives are saturated with texts, with words, to a degree yeah. unimaginable before this point. Uh, we, we live with yeah. texts in our pocket, words in our pocket. So there's a kind of this massive exponential proliferation of texts at exactly and, the same And can I add, yeah. sorry to interrupt, can I add we're exhausted by text? Exactly. Because what I think is fascinating is we're right. surrounded by it, but we don't actually read it very well. Hmm. You know, they've done those studies on people's eye patterns when they're reading text online hmm. and they've shown they, they skim it. I think they call it like an F-shape. So they read across the first paragraph and then they just jump down a bit and then they read across mm. a little bit and then they jump down, um, hence the F shape. So we're so saturated in it that we don't actually read it. We just read bits mm. and we become overwhelmed and exhausted by them, even those by the text, even though we may not admit that. Yep. Okay. Is that relevant to where you're going with I think that your second is, observation? Uh, not quite, but, but I think it's fabulously relevant. And I think, you know, you used the word illiteracy before. That's actually an idea that I want to come back to a little bit later, because I do think that one of the ironies of our situation is that we are inundated with texts, and yet we are becoming increasingly, let's just call it spiritually wearied 
of the task of reading those texts. Or let's say that emails are a more fulsome form of interpersonal communication. I get the tone of emails wrong all the time. I, I'm, I'm a fairly mm. careful reader. And even in sort of relatively benign circumstances, I've, I've picked up a tone in an email that wasn't there at all. And so I think when you have those even f- shorter forms of communication, for there to be almost a kind of almost a kind of emotional key. Ah, this is the overall emotion that is trying to be conveyed by this. And the words, if you like, are the ornaments hanging off this overall emotion. To some extent, communicatively speaking, that can actually be a kind of useful thing. But in, in addition to the fact that we are saturated with text, the other thing, of course, is that texts have become shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter. And so the ability, and even words themselves, we now have a series of standard and infuriating infuriatingly widespread abbreviations to words that are already one syllable. Uh, thank you very much. And so for, for our mm. texts themselves, for not, not only to have proliferated, but also become shorter and shorter and shorter, for there to be this kind of key, this, this little emotional key that's supposed to give us the clue about how we're supposed to read, I think that's where the relief, the emotional relief is, is coming in. Let me just say something else, though, Willie, and I think this, is, this, this would be my case for why emojis aren't necessarily a bad thing or why they may well be useful. The proliferation of texts themselves have come as substitutes for genuine, more time-taking interpersonal communication, whether it be by phone call or face-to-face. One of my favorite uh, media critics, she's not a psychotherapist, but she is deeply ingrained in the psychotherapeutic arts. A woman named Sherry Turkle, she wrote this fabulous book a few years ago called Reclaiming Conversation. It comes out of her experience of students after years and years and years, refusing or rebuffing her requests for in-person, in-office meetings and them asking if they can do it by email or by mm. text message instead. And she, what she gathered over time is that there was an absolute terror on their part of being exposed or being caught vulnerable or being made to feel like they know less than they actually do, that a kind of face-to-face person to person conversation might expose. So if texts have come to substitute, if if the proliferation of texts, I don't just mean SMSs, but if the proliferation of texts have come to substitute for interpersonal voice-to-voice or person-to-person communication, which requires a degree of tact, of spontaneity, of reading the other person, of being literate mm-hmm. in their emotional state, their need, what it is that they're, they're trying to extract from you or exact from you, then what emojis may well be is the restoration of a degree of the personal, but in an artificial confected and even plastic form. So it's the attempt to bring back a degree of relief from the textual by giving you the personal, but the personal in a sanitized, odorless form. So it's safe. So it's safe. And look, I think I've mentioned it on our show before, but my dear friend and the completely wacko Slovenian philosopher Slavoj Žižek has this lovely aphorism where he says, you cannot love your neighbor unless you smell your neighbor. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's his way of saying that uh, forms of obligation at a distance or from uh, at sanitized arm's length or from the other side of a screen, for instance, isn't a real form of okay, moral obligation. But I feel like now you're making an argument for emojis. No, I'm, I'm, I'm saying that emojis may well be a bad response or a bad solution 
to a problem that has been created by the proliferation of texts themselves. Sure, sure, but given that proliferation, given the primacy of digital communication in the form that we're describing, are they not smellifying the text? (laughs) You see what I'm saying? No, no, no. They're imbuing it with a scent. They're, they're making them social. No, no, they're imbuing them with a sense. And that, by the way, for those who still play Minefield Bingo, Waleed's mm. saying imbue, which is a word that I never say. That's got to be one of your words. Really? Yeah. I hadn't noticed that. Yep. Do you know what I think that is? Why? I think that's my legal education. Is that right? There I think go. so. I think it's a word that appears <laughs> in high court judgments quite a lot. Is, do you have a problem with the word? I have no. It's it's just one of those. I notice it immediately as soon as it comes up because it it jars to my ears. It, it's a really. It's a word that I know, obviously, but it's like a. Oh yeah, okay, smarty fans. Oh yeah, like I know it. I just don't want to use it. Yeah, but it, like can that. I say um, one word that I have never used before is smellify. Smellify, nice. So but no, no. Just going back to your point, point, though, emojis yeah. aren't a smellification of, of texts. Oh my god, You're this right. is getting ridiculous. Emojis yeah. aren't a smellification. They are the adding of a kind of pseudo-personal dimension, Mm. which precisely because it's a pseudo-personal dimension can't really be regarded as... Sure, but it's it's compensating, right? It is compensating. So so one of my big problems with emojis is they're so restricted, obviously, even though there's so many of them. They're so restricted. So take the cry laughing emoji, which I learned recently has now become uncool because old people use it and the young people don't. Apparently they oh, put really? a skull. Is that true? Yeah, so, so if they want to say the equivalent of that with an emoji, they put a skull as in, I've died laughing, I'm already dead. Oh, right. See, Which I, I, find I would take that as, as I'm mortified, almost a form of embarrassment. Yeah, possibly. Is that but not what the skull means? You're not cool. Oh, well, really? it means, I guess, whatever the communities of meaning decide it means. Wow. Okay. But the cool the communities of meaning decide that that means that's so funny, I've died laughing. Right. Huh. Anyway, I, yeah, no I only discovered this. Why I know this is another conversation for another therapy session. But <laughs> with the cried laughing emoji, I find this fascinating because crying laughing is a, an extreme response to something. It's saying that this is not merely funny. This is so funny that I've lost control over my faculties. There is literally water pouring forth from my eyes because I cannot contain it anymore. That's how funny this is. And yet that is the emoji that I think you use now. And I'm judging this on my experience with people using it towards me. It's the emoji that you use when something is just mildly amusing. Okay. Just to show, I register that that was funny. Right. And so I think one of the things that bothers me about it is the extreme variance. Like this, this single emoji is capturing so many things that are actually not alike. Mm-hmm. And it's it's making them alike by filing them under the one image. Well, it's a yes. bit like when people said, you know, so you remember LOL, right? Yeah. So LOL, mm. which, uh, and then the David Cameron, anyway, forget that. But the that was interesting because I am sure the first time that was used, someone was genuinely trying to communicate that they weren't merely laughing. They didn't read what you wrote and thought, oh, yeah, that's quite funny, and laugh internally. They found it so funny that they laughed out loud and they had to let you know that. So they wrote LOL. And then it became so ubiquitous that it just became a way of acknowledging something that probably didn't even raise a smile. That incited a chuckle effectively. But, but I mean, well, well this, is, this, this is all part though of the hyperbolization of language as a whole. I mean, the way that we use literally, for instance, now, which I just, uh, okay. Does uh, it literally drive you mad? Scott? It literally drives me mad. Uh, but also the way that we use impact, which, which can I just say, uh, okay, this is, yeah. this is Scott and Waleed's grumpy hour. 
I love this. Impact, I'm going to go very Statler and Waldorf. Impact, <laughs> unless it's referring to your teeth, in which case you yep. need to go see a dentist. Impact <laughs> is not a verb. In some conditions, it is an adjective, but it is not to be used either grammatically or aesthetically or in any proper human company to refer to mm. something being affected by or influenced by something else. So all of these things, I think, are part and parcel of the hyperbolization of language, things that used to be an extreme or, or, or say the use of the term fascist, for instance, things that used to be, say, extreme or even limit cases are now mm. being used to describe something that is fairly kind of median. Can you see the um, message on our screen that yeah. says really need to bring guests in? Is that a sign that nobody's listening anymore? <laughs> well, no. I, I should say that our producer, the wonderful Sinead, also had please imagine emoji of clock inserted here. Uh, so was... Well, if only she'd put emojis on the screen, I might have understood. But now I don't know how to read words. This is The Minefield. You can listen to the show on RN, which you might be doing right now. Yes, we are having this conversation on Radio National. You can catch the podcast anytime on the ABC Listen app. Uh, you can also subscribe to The Minefield as a podcast wherever you subscribe to, uh, to podcasts. For now, let's brood. Hang on, Walid, were you just doing what? your Walter Cronkite then, or were you doing your Philip oh, Adams? No one particular. No it's one just, particular? It, it's just a general disposition and demographic, isn't it? You were, you were doing Gravitas. You were doing RN yes. Gravitas. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Mock Gravitas. This is, is there an emoji for that? I, I don't, don't know. know. Can someone please let us know? Is there? Anyway, this is, yeah. this is great. I love that we have these conversations. But who the hell are we going to get on the show to, to indulge to middle-aged grumpy The last person left on earth. That's who. <laughs> that's, right. that's the only person who will continue this conversation. So uh, our guest, and this is, I mean, I've actually been hoping for this for a while that we can get Sam on the show and we've done it and this topic of all topics. Uh, Samuel He Spall, got this one. I know. <laughs> Samuel Spall is Senior Lecturer in Philosophy at the University of Sydney, which is ordinarily a distinguished enough position that he would be exempt from these sorts of conversations. But Sam, you've deigned to come down to our level and to slum with us in the world of emojis. Thanks so much for finally coming on the minefield. Well, I'm delighted to be here. And in fact, one of my favorite activities is holding forth on issues that I know nothing about. So <laughs> thanks for the opportunity. Well, who would have thought you could make an entire podcast with doing exactly that? So, so, so look, well, Aidan, I've already kind of gone way, way into territory that we weren't kind of expecting to do. You've heard us both make kind of semi-half-hearted cases for why emojis exist and to give the best possible spin on the relief. And I think that probably is the best term to use, the relief that they provide in a world of textually saturated uh, communication. Have we, have we done justice to the use of emojis or is there something that we're missing here? Is there something that really does commend them to our common use? Well, I don't know. I have to say I've been sitting here kind of giggling to myself, feeling refreshed because I'm so used to being the sort of um, curmudgeonly Luddite in the room. Oh, uh, we found the I other one, Scott. Think, we found the other one. Well, no, I actually think here I kind of like emojis. Oh, I, don't, no. I don't see that much. You know, what emojis are good for is just expanding in a modest way, our repertoire of cuteness, you know, how many ways are there in the English language to say, ha ha, funny joke, or miss you, or love you so much, or you look really cute, you know? So now we have a few more ways of doing that. And 
it's not a huge boon to our expressive capacities, nor is it, I don't think, a tremendous harbinger of doom. I do think you all are approaching the bigger underlying issues, particularly when you're advancing these ideas about the sort of textification of our contemporary communicative culture. I mean, it is such a striking change, the way we communicate with one another, from professional contexts to dating to friendship. I mean, now everything happens over text. It's not too long ago that we used to pick up the phone and call people, and now that's like an aggressive gesture, you know? Mm. A phone call, why is this person calling me? Sorry for calling you, but I just felt like our text thread was getting out of control. Yes, I do that all the time. I call someone, I go, sorry, it's just easier this you way. You apologize. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, part of that's an age thing too. I, I, have you ever called someone who's under probably, this is a real Statler and Wardle thing to say, um, under about maybe 25? They they assume someone's died. That's true. If you call, that's the that's the working assumption. So you can't just call And it's not just hi. funny, right? It, no. it, it's amusing, but it's also... Kind of, it's striking and disturbing, I think, when you really think about it. The the context of dating is super interesting to me. I mean, now there's good and bad things, I think, about the proliferation of online dating. I mean, it's it democratizes things in a certain way, you might think. It's easier to meet people eventually or meet a bunch of people and find someone who's good for you. Um, on the other hand, maybe it decreases spontaneity when you're actually out conducting yourself in the world. And... It's, it's quite amazing how many misinterpretations and hurtful or disappointing situations can occur just because people don't pick up the phone and call one another. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so much that can be lost in the medium of text, I think. It, it's amazing for people like us to say, right, because on the one hand, we want to tout the expressive capabilities of the written word and encourage people to engage with great literature and philosophy and history and whatever else. But um, I don't think that's exactly what we're doing when we outsource all of our communicating to these one or two modes. Okay. So let let me add Mm. another dimension to this, which I think Scott will be very interested in, Mm. because I'm pretty sure you've actually mentioned this to me before, Scott. And that is, instead of thinking about this just as a deterioration in the way that we communicate, the sort of the removal of personal interaction in our communication and being deluged with text. What if we look at just the proliferation, not so much of text itself, but of short form communication so that everything is abbreviated in some way? I mean, the minute you have a text conversation with someone, and we've all had those conversations where they end up becoming so large, they get out of hand and you think this is ridiculous. We could have sorted this out in two minutes by talking to each other. But the attempt, the initial aim is to try to do it through some abbreviated form so that it's kind of efficient. But then I think about, okay, as news moves online, for example, the news copy that we're prepared to digest becomes abbreviated or if it doesn't, we don't really read it. Twitter is an abbreviated form of communication. So everything you read there, it's it's a couple of sentences. Aphorisms become very powerful in this kind of environment because they 
often clever in the way they use words, but they're short. It's a sentence or maybe two short sentences max, but that's kind of it. And that what's at stake here is not merely the interpersonal, but the unabbreviated, the ability to, to express something and thereby to consider something at length, which then means there is a depth. Maybe the real tragedy of the emoji is that it is sufficient to capture what we're trying to say because we're not actually saying very much. Can I just, sorry, Sam, can I just sort of piggyback on that really, really quickly? I think one of the things that we're noticing, I, I like this idea, Walid, of the progressive kind of abbreviation such that even headlines, for instance, will tell you everything that you need to know about that article. It's almost as though texts themselves or headlines themselves have become something that is immediately digestible at a glance, which means that they have taken on almost the status of a sort of image. So it'll be... And, and weirdly, they've become longer to do that. Y- y- so that's they become a sentence. Yeah. That is exactly right. But I think the other thing that's going on here, and what really struck me, I've, I've mentioned literally, I've mentioned impact. Let me do my other thing that I just, <laughs> I mean... Words cannot describe how much I hate this. After Toni Morrison died, all these people turned Toni Morrison, the great, I mean, the greatest African-American novelist of the last 100 years, easily one of the greatest novelists who has ever lived, turned her into a purveyor of quotations. And so all these people were pumping out articles with, I read this wonderful quote from Toni Morrison. And suddenly what people say are turned into quotes, which then be, and and, just notice the way that we continually use the word, this quote from somebody, as if what people produce are effectively quotes, which is an idea. I mean, what they mean is probably something like an aphorism, but what they mean is kind of a self-contained body of knowledge in a single thing that's easily digestible, consumable, reproducible, which means tweetable or shareable or whatever. So I, I think you're right that things are becoming briefer and briefer and briefer. And what that feeds into or what that fulfills for us is the longing for consumability at a glance. It might stick with us for a while, but there's no lingering or tarrying with the meaning of it that's required. It simply is there to be consumed in a single bite. Yeah, I think this point about abbreviation is really interesting and important. I mean, think even about our consumption of film and the history of the cinema. I mean, the the consumable portion has gone from 90 or 120 minutes, you know, characteristically going to the cinema to see a film, which you see in an uninterrupted slice. Now we sort of have the 10-minute YouTube video or the 20-minute series or the 30-minute series, and we can sit and watch four 30-minute episodes consecutively, but sitting down for a movie is much more of an ask. It's just strange, and I think one of the things that's being pointed out is that it does seem like whatever factors are conspiring here, they are influencing our attentional capacities, our dispositions about how we engage our attention, how patient we are. And I guess I would want to say about the aphorism in particular, I have a bit of a more complex view because a great aphorism to me is like a great poem, Hmm. which you can't really digest in a quick glance. I mean, I I agree completely that the sort of purveying of, I mean, the the Toni Morrison thing has so many interesting elements. On the one hand, it's sort of reducing this great figure who we, we should really be just going to these novels and studying them because they're luminous and amazing. 
and reducing a novel to a sentence from it is annoying. But of course, it's the thing you do if the way you engage with other people or with ideas is by posting them on Instagram because you can't post a novel, right? So you post a quotation. And I, I do think there's fodder for reflection both in what communication is doing to our attentional capacities and in what it's doing to our moral personalities. Like what exactly are we, I, I think many of the, I mean, many of the people, including my friends who posted things about Toni Morrison, genuinely love Toni Morrison's work. So I'm not trying to impugn their motives necessarily, but it's worth asking like, why are we doing this? Is it really the selfless thing? Well, we just want more people to come to, you know, read Toni Morrison and um, have this important, enriching experience. That might be right, but I think is it's pretty, that the sort I think of it's probably more. Yeah, I think it's probably more likely. There's a fair degree of. Uh, I don't mean virtue signaling in the in the in the usual term, but if we presume that there is a certain virtue in having worked one's way through beloved Toni Morrison's greatest right. novel, uh, then the ability to make it seem as though one knows Toni Morrison's work when one has read precious little of her work by posting a Toni Morrison quote on Instagram or on Twitter, even I, if you've read all, even if you've read the entire corpus, I mean, you could still do intellectual virtue signaling, which is what I would call it. I mean, Twitter is filled with extremely well-read people who spend a staggering amount of time doing what I would call intellectual virtue signaling. Wow. Wow. If you've just joined us, this is The Minefield. Uh, I'm Willie Daly, Scott Stevens, my co-host. We're joined today by Sam Spall, who's a senior lecturer in philosophy at the University of Sydney. We began talking about emojis. I don't know where we've ended up and I don't know where we will end up. But Scott's got an idea. So what do you want to do, Scott? I do have an idea. So one of the other things about emojis and the very fact that I can't understand them or I can't read them, sometimes they're not legible to me, to some extent does question the idea that emojis are simply self-evident, that the meaning is all there on the surface, that they're expressive. No, because they're also playful. Part, part of what they That's are is creative, true. right? Yes, I think yeah. that's that, that's right. So I, I don't want to pursue this idea that emojis are just superficial. It's just the kind of happy face or frowny face or, or whatever. I think there is a bit more complexity than that. However, emojis are also a limited range of emotions that are being served up or that are being offered as the range of, op of emotions that are available to one. At a particular in a particular situation, you know, OK, admittedly, you can use strange combinations to produce a sense of, say, conflicting emotions or that is it wrong for me to feel relieved and bitterly sad at exactly the same time? Is it wrong for me to be worried and, and hopeful at exactly the same? So, you know, I'm, I'm, there is a degree of complexity that's available, but it does strike me that one of the things that I think so much online culture has, in fact, done is it's placed a ceiling on what it is that we can express and therefore, to some extent, on what it is that we can also feel. If, if, if we can accept that the conveying, the communication of an emotion isn't just a one-way act, but by the communication and by other people responding with either sympathy or concern or bewilderment, 
that emotion, it gets chastened. I mean, how I feel in a particular situation becomes malleable on the basis of the way that other people respond to my particular act of emoting. So what I think the plasticity, and by that I don't mean the malleability, I mean the kind of the superficiality to some extent of emojis, what they actually do is they place a kind of ceiling on what can be communicated and in turn what can be in a very real way felt in particular circumstances. And to my mind, I mean, there's something I've been thinking a lot about. Uh, Henry David Thoreau, back in the, uh, I think it was 1854, 1855, he had this really bitter series of concerns that he wrote down and expressed powerfully about the kind of soil that the town of Concord, Massachusetts was producing in terms of humans there. And he said that basically it stunted miserly, miserable men that are being produced by the cultural soil. And he said, basically, humans in Concord, Massachusetts, he said, their thoughts cannot rise above whatever is expressed in the headlines of newspapers on that particular day. Their thoughts cannot rise above that level. He said there is a moral incapacity to go beyond the forms of communication and thinking that are widely available. And I wonder, I mean, Sam Waleed, is there anything to this? I, I worry that the limited forms of communication that are available to us are actually stunting us both emotively and communicatively, but ultimately they've come to reinforce almost a kind of moral incapacity. I think there's something really insightful about that. I mean, the, it, it's hard to understand how one can develop a rich, um, can we call it, inner culture if every 25 seconds you're getting a notification on your phone. I think inner culture and taste and judgment and Developing curiosity requires some solitude and some patience and some struggling with whatever it is that floats your boat, right? If it's old films or classic novels or philosophy or listening to the minefield, I think. I mean, I think even on this show, you all are stretching out a bit the normal, well, now, especially with your new format, right? The, the normal forms that our intake happens to take. Yes. That's good. So this comes, this is part of the abbreviation point, I suppose. But as we were talking about that, Sam, uh, yeah, as soon as you mentioned film, it threw me off actually, hmm. because I thought of, well, in some ways, our televisual habits have become more stretched than ever. You gave the example of watching four 30-minute episodes, but actually what's also happening is people are watching four one-hour episodes yeah, true. back to back and things are much more detailed. The story. Let me put it this way. When I watch a film now from, say, the 80s or whatever, I'm astonished by how quickly it all moves, like how quickly you go yeah. from this character being introduced to them dying and I'm like... Wow, that used to be called character development, but now I feel like that they just sort of appeared as this fleeting presence and then and then disappeared, um, because I've become used to watching these series where even a character that has a short turn might 
appear over three episodes and you kind of get to know them that way. So there is a kind of stretching out. Yet, what I experience, which I think does chime with the point you're making about the constant interruption, is when I do go and see a movie, I get 15 minutes in and I feel like pausing it so I can go make a cup of tea or, <laughs> or just do something. Cause it, and I know what's right. happening is I don't need the tea. What I need is the break from doing something for more than 15 consecutive minutes, right? It's, I can't sustain that anymore. And I'm, I'm someone who's not even on social media. So my phone interrupts me a lot less than I think a lot of other people's phones might. So this is, uh, this is ambient, this quality. I think it's just part of the way that we live. So the question of abbreviation or long form is actually a really complicated and nuanced one, I think in that both seem to be happening at the same time, but the habits of mind, perhaps if that's, maybe that's a better way into it, that, that seems to be shrinking. The cycle of the, of that intellectual or mental habit is shrinking such that we only cope with bite-sized things. I agree. Um, and I don't mean to be painting television with a broad brush. There's some TV that I absolutely love and that I think, um, is appropriate to the long form of eight or 10 hours per season or whatever. I guess what I mean is that it seems to me undeniable, abstracting a bit from particular cases, and just, for example, um, engaging with students all the time, as I do, that it's becoming harder, and, and also just reflecting on myself and my own habits, I have to say. I think it's strange that it was easier for me in my late 20s to sit down and lose myself reading Proust and to lose an entire, lose, that's obviously the wrong word there, right? To gain an entire afternoon in that world without much distraction. It's gotten harder, I think. I just don't think that can be denied. And I do think that has to do with important questions about our moral formation. And it's really easy to ignore these things. So, so to me, that's the sort of the, the emoji thing is like this little salient, very visible edge of a larger conversation, which I do think is really productive. Can we connect the emoji thing back though, Scott? Yeah. With, with what I was observing there and then the point that Sam's just made, mm -hmm. does that really have anything to do with emojis? Or have we just ended up talking about it via a series of steps that are not really connected? No, look, I do think, I mean, really, whatever we begin talking about, one of the great things about this show is that God knows where we're going to end up. So if this has led us on a kind of path uh, into broader forms of communication and attentiveness and uh, and the meaning and the depth or shallowness of expressiveness, I'm, I'm not particularly concerned about that. But I do think it actually does connect back Two emojis, because what emojis, I mean, it does strike me, for instance, and, and I wanted to go back to something, one of the first words that Sam used in his very first answer to our very first question was cuteness. I mean, it's really interesting to me that some of the great aesthetic categories, say aesthetic categories that would have been recognizable to Kant, uh, the transcendent, the sublime, the idea of the limit beneath which I feel very, very small, the limit that makes me aspire towards something else, or even the older categories like the true, the beautiful, the good. These have been effectively, these aesthetic categories have been replaced in our time. And Sian Nye from uh, University of Chicago has argued this incredibly powerfully, where she says our new aesthetic categories are the cute 
the zany, and the merely interesting. And I do think that emojis are this kind of continual reinforcement of cuteness, of never of things never being more than they are purely on the surface, and the kind of levity, the lightheartedness that undergirds most forms of communication. So to that extent, and to the extent that that emojis are primarily purveyors of emotion, of a kind of affect, I do think they have everything to do with our prevailing forms of communication. I guess what I don't think I'd want us to go too far down, and... I mean, aesthetically, Sam, I, I've always had a hard time getting into Proust, whereas reading Mallarmé, for instance, or reading um, Flaubert, I, I feel like I'm, I'm coming home. I don't want to valorize length necessarily. But Oh, that's not what I'm doing. I know. Sorry, I know that that's not what you're doing. I think this is where it's probably worthwhile fleshing this out. I'm I'm staggered yeah. by the number of times, for instance, Waleed, that you and I have been exchanging things by text. And I find mass- myself lost for words. I kind of know what I want to say, but I don't know entirely what I want to say. And I end up staring at this stupid blank screen, not knowing exactly what it is that I want to communicate. And I think that there is something More that... content doesn't always mean better information yes. right? or better communication. Yes, I think that's exactly right. And being floored, for instance, by a poem that I might be two lines in. And I'm, I'm lost for words. I'm, I'm... Yeah, but what you're talking about there is density. No, 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 it's not density. It's not yet knowing the response that this is meant to elicit from me. And I think it's that condition of not yet knowing how to respond. And then I get served up all of these superficial options. Honey can't come to the phone quite yet. Smiley face emoji, worried look, pile of poo, whatever. It's, (laughs) It's this list of options that are meant to fill in the void, that are meant to fill in the uncomfortable gap where I'm not yet sure what response this elicits from me. I think that's actually a condition that needs to be cultivated and indeed is worth cultivating. Yeah, so soon, soon not just your thoughts and emotions, but your behaviors too. I mean, even like wiping your butt will be just the press of a button, it seems like. So I think there are, you're right on the mark with this kind of concern. I just would suggest again, we don't have to mount an assault on cuteness to defend moral seriousness. Mm. I mean, what is more serious than a loving relationship and the, you know, smile of a child? So no, I, I don't but know I think what I Scott's saying is thought. that that's not what's being offered here. So the smile of a child and a loving relationship, is that what you said? I think yeah. they have a depth, whereas this makes all... This reduces whatever you're trying to communicate into a, a very shallow form of expression. It's an either or, or way of saying it is of conceiving of it is what I'm saying because obviously if emotions were our main form of communicating with our partners or our children, that would reveal a lack of depth and seriousness. But they're right. not, right? Mm-hmm. And so, so the deeper issue to me is the ways in which our seriousness is under attack. Uh, and I think Scott's really right in identifying some of those ways. Yeah, but look beyond the relationship you might have with your spouse or whatever. And the fact that so many of our friendships now are mediated in this way. Doesn't that point to the problem? 
I do think that the fact that so much of our conduct and behavior and thinking is mediated by, first of all, a screen, mm. and second of all, a set of typically very short, rote, kind of formalized bits of text, absolutely, that's something to be seriously pondered. Actually, that makes me, I, I wonder, mm. wonder what you think, Scott, what's worse, the emoji phenomenon or those predictive responses? Oh, I think they're both equally worthy of our loathing and disdain. Um, the point that Sam raises, though, I think is even the more serious one. It's actually it's the constant mediation by screen. I mean, we we think about screens increasingly as these wonderful gateways into broader worlds. Uh, um, these windows that get opened up into new forms of knowledge or new experiences. I, I'm increasingly coming to think about screens as almost moral prophylactics. They bring you close to an emotion. They bring you close to an experience. They bring you close to another person, but always, always, always with the requisite emotional distance, lest I be found to not be as sincere as I'm seeming or as lighthearted or as funny as I might come across or as politically engaged as my carefully constructed online persona might lead one to believe. In other words, these are forms of communication, of intimacy, of proximity, of closeness, of expressiveness, of, of emotion without all of the risk and vulnerability and being shown to have been a fraud, but in being shown to have been a fraud, to be encouraged to be more than I was before that go into real relationships. And this sort of though, because there's high risk in mediated communication via screen, particularly where it's public. Yeah. In fact, I would say it's one of the biggest problems is that it's hyper risky because um, none of the human elements of communication and deliberation and exchange are present. So, yeah, I, I feel like for every assertion we're making here, the extreme opposite is true. Yeah. Um, Sam, I'd, I'd like, I wouldn't mind you coming in on this because I, I think what Wally's probably pointing to there, I mean, we were talking about, say, relationships between friends or relatively close relationships mediated by screens. But the very fact that our public and private forms of communication are so permeable, are so interchangeable and can spill mm. out or bleed out into the wider world. That's actually but also are so similar. Like the register of them is yeah, very similar. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this is, the, this is what Emerson raged. I mean, this is the embodiment of technological conformity. Yeah, that's right. I think, I think the um, pessimistic read is that the screen has become kind of the robot overlord of our motivations and thoughts and emotions, right? I mean, I think th there's no doubt that we get a lot of good things out of um, these technologies. But I think we also get more addictive behavior that we don't always notice or understand. I think we often get more anxiety that we don't always know how to locate or properly conceptualize. I think we get more um, sort of concern for things that if we really uh, properly articulated their nature to ourselves, we might realize that we're not actually concerned with them. Like the things we're pointing out in terms of the underlying motivations for different things we do on the internet. So, 
Yeah, I do think there's a dark side to all of this. I see. This I don't, also, I, I don't know if I. Yeah, go but, ahead. But, but see, Sam. I mean, and while this also reinforces, I think, this really, really important thing that it seems to me we've not just forgotten, but we've forgotten that we ever knew it. That speech isn't just the expression or the assertion of the self. I don't know. Yeah. I I don't know what I think about something until I say it and write it, and someone responds. With what the hell did that mean? I I, I don't know what I really or feel. Or until you're canceled on Twitter for yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what I really feel about something until I try to give that emotion expression and I wait and see whether that emotion resonates with anybody else. And I think this, this idea that our forms of communication are kind of unidirectional or it's just the expression or the assertion of the self is just such a, 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 a self-evidently false notion of what communication in fact is by fear that it's being perpetuated by the technologies that we use. And people would say we're being unfair, that there is communication online. And of course, there is a certain kind of conversation. And, you know, there are some really productive conversations that are happening in these spaces. But I do think this idea of reclaiming conversation and um, getting back into the habits that the art of conversation really displays the sort of curiosity about another person, about your interlocutor's views, not just for your own sake or for, you know, confirmation bias reasons, but because you care about that person and their consciousness and um, a willingness to sort of take them seriously and to be sensitive to their tone and their gesture and the things bubbling under the surface that maybe it's difficult to see. I mean, a lot, a lot of different, I think, intellectual and moral virtues are on display in the best instances of conversation. And it would be good to return to some of those. I think we can all agree that conversation should be like this, really. Just people sitting around, no emojis, full sentences mediated by the time constraints of a broadcast medium and the conventions <laughs> that apply therein. Thank you, Sam. Oh, you're living a good life, Waleed. <laughs> yeah, I know. You have all your conversations this way. It's amazing what you become at the end of it. Again, for another therapy session. Thank you, Sam. It's been great to have access to you. Uh, you didn't disappoint. We gave you a real dud here and you completely <laughs> brought it home. So thank you. Um, <laughs> oh, thank you, guys. Sam Spall, the Senior Lecturer in Philosophy at the University of Sydney. Our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield. Uh, we're at an end for this week. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.